Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts on the channel. And today we're talking to Lorenzo Cerviche, who is an assistant professor of literature and medicine at Lehigh University and the author of the new book, Medicine is War, the Martial Metaphor in Victorian Literature and Culture, which is just out from SUNY Press. Lorenzo, welcome to the show. Thank you, Claire. Thank you very much for having me. I wondered if you could begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so uh, I was born in Mexico City and my uh, family immigrated to the United States when I was uh, about a year old and I grew up in Houston, Texas. And uh, once I graduated high school, I sort of gave um, undergrad uh college a try, but uh, didn't do it so well and fumbled around for a few years until I uh, finally found myself in California, uh, Palm Desert, where I was an emergency medical technician for a little while um, and then became a personal trainer. And uh, after a few years of doing that, I ended up working as a uh, fitness instructor for the Betty Ford uh, Center um, Drug and Alcohol Recovery Hospital. Um, in the midst of that, doing that for five years, I um, started going back to school at a community college and was working toward a degree in exercise physiology um, because of my profession. I was interested in it. Um, and uh, along the way, I, I took biology courses and chemistry courses and uh, pretty much the things you needed uh, as prerequisites for medical school, along with um, English classes all the time um, because I needed requisites and sometimes I just needed credits and I liked it and I was good at it. Um, and then um, after so many years and I was getting get close to the point of graduating, I kind of needed because of time constraints and my job sort of finish a track. Um, and so I started taking uh, practice GRE and practice MCAT exams and um, did better on the GRE than I did on the MCAT. And um, so then decided what I, um, I wanted to do. 
and um, was thinking about going to graduate school for um, exercise physiology and kinesiology. Um, had this dream that I wanted to uh, be an exercise physiologist for NAS- uh, NASA. Um, and then, um, then I learned um, just kind of around the area that there was a univer- in the University of California, Riverside. Um, I was looking at just what graduate programs in English look like. And I discovered that um, there was a person there, uh, Dr. Susan Zeger, and she had written a book on the history of addiction or the history of the idea of addiction in 19th century American and British literature and culture. Um, so obviously, since I worked in the um, addic- addiction medicine field, um, I, I was kind of interested and drawn in that. So I read her book and I just I had no idea that you could talk and learn and study medicine outside of medicine, um, as it were, and certainly not from a literary, cultural, historical perspective, I came to learn. Um, And my wife, who's a pharmacist, um, who pretty much taught me everything I know about medicines, um, she, uh, she always, you know, always would tell me like, you know, you're going to go to medical school or you're going to go to pharmacy school. Like you're really interested in pharmacology. And I'm like, yeah, but I suck, I suck at chemistry. And, and she's like, well, you just kind of like, you just want to study medical things. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, well, it's unfortunately there's, it's unfortunate. There's no such thing as a degree in medical things. Um, <laughs> but it turns out um, I was kind of sort of able to do that. Um, I, I, I applied to all the local graduate schools um, that were within um, a certain radius of where I lived in Palm Desert, um, cause we had just bought in a house, um, after I'd been working for so many years. And, uh, the only one I got into was the university of California, Riverside. And, um, so I started going there and it was, it was a wonderful program. Um, and after a few year, after a year or two as a master's student, I, I, I was interested in so many things between, uh, new media, comic books, video games, um, theory. I started to become very interested in narrative, uh, what was called then and still called narrative medicine and this idea of medical humanities. And um, since I was kind of drawn there by uh, Professor uh, Zeger's work on addiction, I became really interested in the history of medicine. And um, I actually didn't have any... I had more of an affinity toward postmodern literature, actually. Um, and I didn't really like or know much of Victorian literature, but at a certain point I had to pick a field. Um, and that sort of got defined by, well, what period of time and place has the most interesting medical history that I could write about? And that's how I came to Victorian studies. Um, and so, uh, throughout my degree, I, um, I started, uh, writing about, I wrote a paper on Dracula and about how Dracula was um, sort of figured as this kind of at once a state enemy and at once um, medical infection. Um, and it drew on this old uh, paper in a bioethics for medical humanities journal, I think by uh, an author named Paul Hodgkin called Medicine is War and Other Analogies. Um, and it talked about different analogies about medicine and, and um, in terms of war journeys and um, sort of uh, um, the other typical metaphorical frames that are thought of. Um, and that's, um, that's kind of where I got to um, at least this topic, but I, um, I finished uh, grad school 
in 2017. And as I was finishing, it was, I was really fortunate to have a job come up at Lehigh University that was looking for somebody with a dual, that want, they wanted somebody with a dual appointment in both English and their health medicine and society program, which is a health humanities program plus and mostly with a lot of social science. So medical sociology, medical anthropology, uh, bioethics. Um, and so they wanted somebody who could do literature and medicine, um, not necessarily a Victorianist. Um, but since throughout my graduate career, I was fortunate to work with um, people like Professor Cheryl Vince, um, who co-edited, who was, as a graduate student, she co-edited a book with me on zombies and medicine. Um, and I had sort of been able to publish on medicine in contemporary popular discourse um, in, a, in a few different uh, venues, like um, I wrote a paper on uh, psychopharmacology and Clockwork Orange, um, and um, then I had a paper on um, sort of the theory of contagion um, in Matthew Arnold's um, in an edit collection I did. And um, I so I I feel like I was just so fortunate to be able to have a sort of repertoire and archive of saying like, hey, I can do like broadly most kinds of literature, um, although I can focus on Victorian, but I can also just talk about medicine generally from a critical, theoretical, historical um, and literary uh, perspective. Um, so I, I think it was a really good fit. Um, and I was, I was so extraordinarily fortunate to get that job and it's, it's been wonderful. And I've been here for, um, uh, I think this is my fourth year and I'm, uh, my tenure is currently under review. And I think it's in like the last of the, I don't know, it's like seven echelons it goes through or what, or whatever. Uh -huh. Um, so I think it's in the final two. So, so we're still waiting to hear, um, but I'm hoping to hear good news. Um, and other oh, than that, oh, that's, yeah. that's exciting. And, and I did not know that about, I just taught Zieger's book. Um, oh, you did? Ago. Yes. Yes. That was, that was the book I, I mentioned about, um, before we started recording. Oh um, my gosh. That is yeah, so funny. So the coincidence. Anyway, um, tell, tell, let's, Let's get into to medicine as war. Did, yeah. did it grow out of that essay that you read in graduate school or how did you come to write this book? Yes. Yeah, so um, I wrote this paper on Dracula. I wrote this Dracula paper on Dracula for Susan Zeger's class on Victorian media. And um, one of the sources I found was a source in uh, this Paul Hodgkin article that uh, talked about like it's just kind of short perspective review piece. Um, about different metaphors in medicine. And then I started looking into Lakoff and Johnson's work on um, uh, me uh, metaphors we live by and sort of different I ideas and, and, and kind of very clearly saw that this was like a, a dominant operative metaphor. And I saw that people had written about it in bio bioethics and, philo and philosophy and linguistics and uh, some people in clinical ethics. Um, and then there was Susan Sontag, uh, Illnesses Metaphor, um, that talks about the war metaphor um, emerging from the age of germ theory. And then uh, pretty much any other time I saw it mentioned explicitly, it was usually in reference to that, um, or kind of talked about in passing, or used itself as a heuristic to kind of describe 
uh, the historical, um, I won't say progression because I don't like that term um, historically, but the, uh, um, the process in which medicine um, developed as a field um, in, the, in, in, in the face of infectious disease from the 17th to the 21st century. Um, and so I became interested in this idea and I wrote this paper about Dracula and um, Professor Zier, Susan was, uh, she liked it and she thought it was interesting. And she just started asking me really interesting questions about it. And at the same time, I had read this uh, book. Um, I can't remember. It's by Semenza. I don't know if you've read it, but it's about mm-hmm. like how to do graduate school in the 21st century. Have not um, and probably, it's probably too late now. Anyway, yeah. go go on. And <laughs> so, it uh, one of the suggestions that that he had is if you can kind of hone in on dissertation topic early on, um, and make your seminar papers around it, like that can be useful. Um, and so, I kind of sort of try to do that strategy. Um, and so, after the Dracula paper, um, Susan suggested I try to apply for um, fellowships and grants to go to archives, and I ended up going to the Welcome, which is the my favorite the favorite place in the world. Um, and this was after I'd written a paper on Joseph Conrad and Heart of Darkness and its relationship to tropical medicine, not in a sort of medicine is war inflection, but just kind of on the same topic. Um, so then I started doing some archival research on Joseph Conrad and the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. And this is where I started to see some very real con- material connections between military medicine and civilian medicine, public health, and then medicine is war, uh, war metaphorically in literature as this kind of um, bridge between those things. Um, and then, so when I came back and I, I, t- I talked to Susan about it and she asked me, well, yeah, what's, what's the relationship between actual war and medicine is war. And so she's like, what about blood transfusions and amputations and field hospitals and, um, hygiene prevent in, in military medicine, the Crimean war. And so that kind of led me down this whole trajectory um, of that. And, you know, the, the dissertations as they do, they get very, very, very big. Um, and so I ended up, uh, writing my, uh, PhD exam paper, which is one thing we had to do for exams was on Charles Kingsley's novel, um, two years ago, which is about, it is about, but it doesn't actually contain much of the Crimean war, but it's all about a local cholera epidemic. And, um, he is just this very heavy-handed uh, 19th century um, uh, historian and um, religious and cultural figure. And he was very big into the hygiene movements, uh, you know, all the Florence Nightingale um, and Edwin Chadwick. Um, and that's kind of how I got on a track. And then where I started to struggle with was, like, how much is, is this book uh, literary literary studies, cultural studies, and histories, because the more I read about this, the more I started to get into medical history and the more nuanced I realized uh, medical history, you know, aside from the history of science being distinct fields that have their own, you know, expansive scholarship and depth of research. Um, But then that's aside from Victorian studies. Um, and then that's aside from like trying to learn, uh, you know, and stay attuned to the, you know, the current knowledge of epidemiology and infectious disease. 
um, especially when I started to write about more contemporary medicine. So that's that's kind of the the, the product that the, this book is out of this uh, the the challenge the affordances and challenges of working between disciplines um, and trying to negotiate that and do 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 due diligence to um, the the his, medical historical scholarship the. Uh, British history scholarship, uh, the history of science scholarship, the science and technology studies scholarship, um, the critical theory, uh, and then, of course, um, the literature and all the people that have written about the literature. Um, and then and then ultimately, at the end, apply it to more contemporary um, or speak to its relevance to contemporary issues related to public health, infectious disease, pharmacology, uh, most notably, uh, antimicrobial resistance. And so it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a ride. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's always been, always been hard. I always felt like I was never, um, doing, getting the medicine right enough or getting the history right enough. And then when I was, I would get feedback that like, about where, where what's the literature have to do with it? So then the challenge became to think about like, so is, is literature just a representation of this historical phenomenon or does it actually do something? And that's, you know, where I had my other uh, committee members, uh, Professor Cheryl Thent, who does science and technology studies, science fiction and biopolitics. And then uh, Dr. George Childers, who did, um, does uh, Victorian studies. And um, they along with Dr. Zeger, along with, uh, you know, getting rejections and articles and then getting some accepted in peer reviews and conferences and just meeting lots of wonderful people who were mentors and, um, you know, people that thought with me, um, both senior scholars at other schools and, you know, other graduate students, I was able to kind of put this, this thing together uh, finally, after after a couple of years, and um, get it into uh, submit it. Um, and while I was in my, I submitted it right as I started my job at Lehigh, mm-hmm. and then uh, got some really, I got some favorable readers reports. Um, some of it with some tough feedback, but that was good. Um, and so the process worked for me. I think um, it made the book better. Um, and then, uh, and then it got accepted with the revisions, and then copy edits came along, and then coronavirus came along, and right. that well, added um, a kind of other dimension. Well, but let's, but before sorry. we get into that, let's let's um, let's talk a little bit about the structure because you do sure. manage to pull all of these things together, and there is um, a lot going on in this book, but it's organized in a way that makes it comprehensible. So. Thank you. Um, you That's so nice to hear. (laughs) You classify medicine as war as a a genealogy. You say it's a genealogy of the the martial metaphor. Can you tell us um, what that means and then how the book is is organized? There are two parts for our listeners. There are two parts to the book, um, and it's it's organized chronologically, roughly. It is organized chronologically. And um, this was kind of a difficult choice because in some ways um, I've noticed, particularly in the field of um, Victorian studies and any kind of literary studies that does historical work, um, it's become more favorable to organize topically and less chronologically to sort of, um, you know, push back against chronological organizational logics of of canons and such. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I kind of struggled how to think about this. But um, this is where I found some work um, from beyond medical historians. Um, I, I often look to the work of uh, Michel Foucault and Nicholas Rose. And um, that's where I kind of started to think about this as a genealogy. And it was as a kind of not presentist history, but a history of the present insofar as it um, kind of thought through how um, all the, uh, the, the thinking and idea and material manifestations of medicine is war um, in terms of contemporary practices and institutions sort of emerged out of these sets of relations and struggles and conflicts and um, alliances and institutions and people and things like, you know, drugs and other non-human actors like microbes and pathogens and how all these sort of conflict, conflicting actors um, sort of created these sets of conditions that catalyzed this metaphor to kind of emerge and become a sort of dominant framework through which um, humans understood the relationship. Uh, I focus mostly on infectious pathogens, but I would suggest also broadly with um, infectious disease and other kinds of disease as well. Um, so that's kind of why I think of it as a genealogy um, that not it was a progression or a trajectory toward. Um, it's one it's one slice of a big story of a big history story, um, and that emerged out of a specific set of conditions and the archive I, I chose out of out of the kind of math sample I looked at. Um, told this story, and so I shaped it in terms of. Um, sort of two parts. I was the the one thing I noticed most in the 19th century was this, um, and in early on when thinking about um, people who had written about medicine as war as a metaphor, like Sontag, was uh, the latching on to germ theory, um, which sort of um, formalizes in in the 1880s with Cox postulates and the discovery of uh, the anthrax pathogen and. Um, uh, tuberculosis pathogen, and then right before that, the work of Pasteur. Um, although, as I think uh, Nancy Tomes accurately describes that, it doesn't really latch on completely in the public consciousness until maybe the the early 20th century. Um, and then, so before this, um, you have contagion theory and uh, anti-contagionism or miasma theory. And again, I should qualify that there are a lot of there's a lot of really great scholarships. Uh, a lot of this stemming from Edwin Akronik's work on the ideology behind these different disease theories, um, but more recent great work um, by uh, historians like Michael Brown and Christopher Hamlin and Christopher Lawrence um, that um, also are able to uh, kind of talk about the nuances. Um, and it's 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 it, they're not really uh, such discrete entities, but uh, for the sake of the book and certainly for the sake of describing it, I'll, I'll kind of delimit them as such. But there was this tendency of thinking of, of disease um, as either being um, caused by noxious smells um, or bad air. And um, that's what was referred to as miasma. And then there was another school of thought that uh, thought it was caused by contact between people, although the sort of um, uh, ultimate cause between people, whether that be a kind of vital force or a poison or some kind of, um, you know, ethereal 
uh, thing wasn't really quite articulated. Uh, but there are political stakes in this kind of argument in terms of like what kind of measures you could take to protect or uh, defend or mitigate it. Um, so if something was contagious, then the obvious measures were quarantine and isolation. And the, the you know the really great work on this is is done by Graham Mooney, um, and was a medical historian at uh, John Hopkins who writes a, a book about uh, so aptly titled intrusive interventions, um, and then um, the miasmists or anti-contagionists, um, what they basically suggested was more uh, progressive insofar as like we need to look toward the environment and the things that are causing these noxious smells that's basically a product of urbanization and the industrial revolution um whether that be like pollution uh and or human waste um as in like feces or as in de dead or decaying matter um and so the, um, by the mid-century um you have cholera that's sort of the the um the, this main point of contention. Um, and in the midst of it, you also have things like tuberculosis, which was really hard to, I, I think, prove uh, causally that it was um, not, uh, that it was contact-based or contagious because that's such a long incubation period. Um, but, you know, cholera causes people to have diarrhea and, um, you know, they basically just excrete um, all their body fluids until they get hyponatremia, hydrate and die. And, you know, there is literal filth everywhere. And um, obviously there's a smell accompanying that from that and then also from death. And so the smoke for the fire became a very sort of, um, I think, reasonable understanding to think that way. Um, when I try to teach this history to my students, I try to not, I, I try to, try to not, try to tell them to not think about history as we used to think and now we know, or like, well, how could they possibly not know about, you know, the bacteria, but sort of like, what are the, the sort of, um, epistemic frames or, um, knowledge base and, um, political and cultural values that made this particular way of thinking thinkable versus this one. Um, and I should also add a more, a more recent book that really touches on the miasma aspects um, about this in the United States um, is uh, uh, Melanie Kishel's works, The Smell Detectives, um, an olfactory history of 19th century urban America. Um, and although my work is British, that, that, that book is, mm -hmm. is fabulous. And so if readers want to learn more about miasma, they should probably um, look there. Um, and so basically these kind of, uh, disease theories, as I saw in the first part of the century before, um, the, uh, Broad Street outbreak were kind of entangled. And I saw in Mary Shelley, there was a, a in Mary Shelley's last man from the 1830s, uh, from, I'm sorry, uh, from 18, um, 1827, 26, um, was writing. And before this was, uh, the first cholera epidemic that a pandemic that hit the world and Britain was sort of, um, it didn't hit almost, but not quite. Um, although, uh, there's a lot of, um, sort of historical epidemiological evidence that their uh, troop movement in, in India, um, certainly was a major factor. And then right afterwards, the second cholera pandemic hit in, in England did get hit. 
Um, so that's kind of one of the places where I look to uh, Mary Shelley. And Mary Shelley has this, it's, it's very miasmic, but at the same time you get sort of contagion logics in it. So most of these books, a lot of these books sort of um, don't do the kind of discretory categorization of this disease is, a, is contagion. This is miasma and this is germ. I mean, for instance, if you go all the way to Dracula, although Dracula is clearly informed by germ theory and he gets described as such in microbial terms and even parasitological terms as another kind of um, microbial life, um, I mean, the, the figuration is still pre-germ theory contagion in terms of like toxin and contact and then also very miasmic. Um, so there's this weird kind of conflation um, almost all the time. Um, and then, but when I started to see the division where germ theory started to show up is where I divided it into part two. And um, part one is very much contagion and miasma sort of competing up until through the Crimean War, um, which is the the end of the military component of that proportion and the earlier part being like the, the sort of colonial work of the British and also the um, sort of fallout from Napoleonic Wars and the development likewise of the medical profession as a result of military medicine. Um, and again, Michael Brown would be someone is someone who I really look to, to, to understand the history of the profession relative to that. Um, cause then military historic historicism is, is a whole nother, a whole nother animal to deal with. And then part two is when I started to see works that engaged with germ theory very explicitly, um, like Conan Doyle and Dracula and Trop and Heart of Darkness. Um, and then by the, by the time we get to Tropical Darkness, tro um, Heart of Darkness and, um, Dracula, uh, germ theory isn't just bacteriology, but there's another sort of field emerging at the time um, that is parasitology and it's a function of tropical medicine, which is a, a very explicit military function uh, and institution. And um, I would say technology of colonization. And that's kind of sort of the, the trajectory um, of the parts, if, if, if that was a helpful sort of... Um, summation. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, so 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 for any of our listeners who um, are are not literary theorists or graduate trained in English, um, how did you choose the books that to, to analyze or the novels that you were going to analyze and 
in, in your work? That's um, a great question. God, please, I can't take. Uh, you you didn't just pick them at random off the shelf, right? No, no. I mean, why do I have this data set amongst all the others? Um, and of course, they um, they're not just books. I mean, most of them are. Uh, there is one or two books um, at work in each chapter, um, but that's in conversation with a larger archive of uh, medical prose of the period. Um, and the reason I chose these books um, was either because of their um, significance um, in terms of like temporal significance and the moment, the moment and period in which they were speaking, um, like Mary Shelley's just uh, Temporally, it, it's like just at the right time and it happened to topically fit. Um, and although at the time it wasn't really well regarded um, over time, and especially, gosh, in the past 10 or 15 years, it's become like, I mean, I would, some people would disagree, but I would say it's like the new Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just also extraordinarily nuanced. Uh, Charles Kingsley's book, which a lot of people don't know and they shouldn't know because it's not a very good book. Um, it's not a fun read. It's really heavy handed. Um, but the sort of cultural work it's very explicitly doing in terms of uh, nationalism and sort of um, uh, inculcating uh, this hygienic um logic um in readers like very explicitly and tying it to christianity um and uh national unity while still you know having you know appropriate for them like late divisions of labor um it and also at the time it was a very very widely read novel um and it was reviewed a lot and that's how i came to to choose that one dracula um you know, is, is such an iconic and canonical text. It's, 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 it has so much in it. It's been written about so much. And in fact, um, I was advised as a graduate student not to try to publish a paper on Dracula because that's like what everybody does. Um, and it might still be good advice. And I did not in fact try to publish the paper on Dracula. Um, but Dracula obviously is because is, even though there's definitely vampiric um, folklore and mythology that it deploys and refashions. I mean, it's such a sort of cultural touchstone and temporally also works at such a significant moment in time in 1897. I mean, that's when they discover Ronald Ross discovers the um, uh, life cycle of the malarial parasite. This is sort of the, the turn of the century. I mean, we get really the rise of eugenics and um, we're about to shift into the, the 20th century. Um, and then there's also the, the, the kind of very not so subtle racism and xenophobia, um, and, um, the way it thinks about the past and the present, it's, it pretty much had all the content that I wanted to look at. And I thought was important, um, after surveying the other kind of possible options in terms of, uh, books that dealt with medicine, either, Ex very, very explicitly or very, or more subtly. Conan Doyle became another one. And his is interesting because I, I talk about a number of his works, but um, most of his works do not have medicine as war explicitly in them at all, like written as such. And the fact there's only two of them that are, that are off the top of my head that do, and those are in the 20th century. Um, so what I started to look at there was the, 
relationship between the ideas that uh, and ide- the and ideologies um, that relate and sort of structure medicine as war. And so that would be like militarism and nationalism and xenophobia, um, control and discipline um, and um, sort of mapping, tracking, sort of surveillance. And so I started to see how those ideas were working. And then I wrote that. And then I wrote the part about um, where he talked about germs as weapons and used as germs and plot lines in the 20th century and tried to find the connections. And what I did ended up finding was that in his prose works, about, uh, when he was writing against anti-vaccinationists at the period, um, he's very, very militaristic in his language. And then he writes two books on justifying the Boer War. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, very literal militarism. And in fact, he volunteered, even though he was too old, to um, be on the medical front lines of the Boer War. Um, and then when I started to see just the relationship um, between how he wrote about that and his fiction, and then ultimately his status, like celebrity status at the period, it seemed like a, a really significant point of inflection um, and a sample let's say if we're using statistical terms to talk about um, what's going on in all these moments and all these different discourses um, that sort of puts the culture on track to metaphorizing medicine as war. Uh, uh, Joseph Conrad and Tropical uh, Heart of Darkness is really interesting because there are very few um, like, you know, medicine is war or we're fighting disease. It's much it's much more subtle, although there is plenty of illness in the novel and it is tropical illness. It's also sort of like, you know, um, this, um, uh, racialized, um, you know, the jungle is going to sort of degenerate, degenerate humanity, uh, civilized humanity. So I started to look there at the relationship more in a historical capacity between, uh, British tropical medicine and what was going on in the Congo. And there's plenty of, of, of work on this that I drew from there, like Deborah Neal's networks of tropical medicine. Um, and then Emily Taylor, uh, Brown, um, who does, who does is probably done the most extensive work on Ronald Ross. Um, uh, uh, it was someone who I, whose work I drew a lot from. And so once I understood the context of tropical medicine and the relationship between Britain and um, the Congo, um, I had a heart of darkness, which had plenty of tropical illness in it. And it was also such a significant work. And it does have theories and representations of microbial life. Um, there's this really interesting scene in there where he talks about um, sort of the great colonizing, civilizing forces as germs of empire. Um, and of course, Conrad's like, you know, while he is, you know, dehumanizing the the, um, the uh, native people of the Congo and, um, you know, we can't deny his sort of racist tropes and language. He's also at the same time writing along with uh, people like uh, the K- writing the casement report that are sort of condemning uh, Britain, I'm sorry, um, Belgians' actions in the Congo and sort of looking, putting it on the world stage. 
Um, and at the same time, he's writing through modernism, a very, di- uh, very different kind of novel than uh, two years ago or The Last Man or, you know, I don't write about Jane Eyre or Middlemarch, but like anything like that. So I looked at the way that his um, use of indeterminacy and sort of refraction of ideas that isn't so clear cut um, is sort of um, deconstructing the idea, the idea of metaphorizing medicine as war and um, specifically looking at how um, tropical medicine as this ostensible humanitarian institution was actually causing harm and, you know, a supportive kind of military infrastructure and colonization. Um, so that's how we go from Shelley to Conrad, which, again, I was really worried about because it seems like a very... Um, very fitting book ending of like, oh, like, you know, romanticism to modernism. Um, so I was kind of worried about that because it felt like um, it fit too well. Um, so I tried to write about, you know, that transparently um, and about why I thought it was useful to order them in this way um, and why to end it with that. And the, the, the other final reason um, that I end with Conrad is um, the sort of relationship with Conrad tropical medicine and the beginning of the development of uh, anti-microbial um, chemotherapy. And by chemotherapy, I don't mean anti-cancer drugs. I mean um, any kind of synthetic compounds that are able to um, neutralize microbes, um, like rather than mercury. Around this time, we start to see um, the development of organoarsenicals, um, like Salversan uh, in, ni- in 1912, I believe. And that sort of develops out of um, drugs that were tested in the Congo um, that, the British had a ha- that the British had a hand in. Um, and then I saw, so I started to think about uh, Heart of Darkness and its relationships to, to bullets and magic bullets. And that's how it sort of takes, takes us into the 20th century where we get in the 30s sulfa drugs, um, which, you know, were the first or which after organo arsenicals, which could cure, um, um, I'm forgetting the name of the pathogen that causes sleeping sickness, trypanosomiasis. Um, we get, uh, sulfa drugs, which are the first kind of pre-antibiotic, the first miracle drugs, um, as one historian puts it. Um, and then a decade or so later, you get the mass production of antibiotics. And I sort of started to finally see the conclusions that, I would suggest that thinking of medicine as war is something that catalyzed antibiotic thinking um, as a way of um, mediating the relationship, one of the ways of mediating the relationship between humans and microbes. Um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I was trying so- to I was trying to answer it in terms of like sample sizes and data sets and methodologies in ways that uh, I guess um, we might not think about literary studies as much of. I'm, I'm going to ask you uh, kind of to, to simplify your argument a little bit. Um, maybe sure. give us a, a, a caricature of it. Um, a caricature. Tell, tell, tell us how, how the, um, how does the martial metaphor change over the, in the course of your book? Maybe you could talk pre or post germ theory. Um, that would be great. I can do that. Yeah. Um, I think I would start by saying that uh, thinking about medicine as war is not natural. It's, it seems to be our go-to phrase. I mean, if you, 
if I ask you to describe the um, immune system with verbs, you will likely most of us say attacks and, you know, invades that kind of language. Um, and it would seem that that language is a function of the discovery of germ theory. Um, but I suggest otherwise. I see it ha happening much earlier than germ theory, although it does certainly take off in a different direction after germ theory and after antibiotics. Um, and so another question then becomes like, well, what came before it? And um, while I'm not an early modernist or a medieval or a classicist scholar of, um, of medicine of antiquity, the, re the, the research I did do on um, pre-19th century medicine um, and that I saw is that before the early 19th century, you know, the kind of operative logic or way of thinking about medicine was more in terms of balance and the really simplistic way to put it would be in terms of the four humors and uh, the human body is being coextensive with the environment. And when there was something out of balance, that could be rebalanced. Um, and that's just kind of a different uh, grammar, I guess I would say, of thinking about the relationship between humans and disease processes and disease. And this is also because diseases weren't thought of exactly as things in and of themselves again, whether we're talking about pathogens or processes. Um, so we went from balance to, anti to kind of antagonism to, I would suggest, antibiosis. Um, and that's not the way it had to be. Um, it is the way that we went. And so what my book suggests is that the language of talking about medicine militarily like starts in military medicine, like textbooks and uh, articles. And then I see it emerge in literature and sort of contemporary periodicals and sort of any most texts that are kind of representative of discourse of, of um, you know, that period in Britain from the 19th century. And then I find literature as sort of these um a kind of archive that's able to that puts these two things together and helps me understand how one related to another and in some case cases how they explicitly made the connection and you know allow that metaphor to travel from the military to the civilian sphere is that is that more helpful yeah that's great that's a um, wonderful summary um and and the book takes us all the way up to the present. And so um, I, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit, if we were to look around today, where, where do we Oof. see the Marshall metaphor and how does it relate to its sort of previous iterations? Okay, so before talking about COVID, because that's, it's, it's, it's a whole animal, right? Um, I just would, uh, you, you can Google around and just write, a uh, battle against uh, the war against a new weapon for, and you can put that in Google or you can put that in most periodical search databases, or you can put that in Web of Science and PubMed and mostly infectious disease will pop up. And again, it's a good exercise to do this pre 2019, mm -hmm. but I'm just kind of like pulling some up and like uh, some of the obvious ones are like a battle against antibiotic resistance, which can rhetorically make sense. We're used to this shorthand, but from what I think I, I'm, I'm 
a little concerned with that because I think thinking of this as war and also that the, the material historical connections between antibiotics is, um, and the military industrial complex is one of the things I think that got us here. Um, but just sort of looking around, I also um, saw an interesting um, piece that was how to win the war against obesity. And um, another, uh, this is another interesting one I saw today that I wasn't expecting to find. Ketamine might be our new secret weapon against depression, um, which is particularly interesting since, um, although I'm, I'm not very familiar with ketamine's uh, history, but I know that there is a association and also now a trend of, of looking to drugs that were sort of controlled by the intelligence community and the military in terms of research, like psych um, psychedelics and um I don't think, I mean, ketamine was an anesthetic before it was used as an antidepressant. Um, but just the, the language there of might become our secret weapon against depression um, does a lot of interesting things to me. A lot of things kind of flash that, um, you know, again, I have sort of my preconceived um, framework for that I don't have evidence for specifically with that. But I think that would be something interesting to pursue. I also think it's interesting to think about um, chronic diseases like uh, diabetes or, you know, it could be depression and think about whether um, fighting or having wars with them is a useful framework. Um, also, can't, I mean, cancer is something that plenty of people write about and have written about, written about in terms of war and metaphors and, you know, often um, finds plenty of people in their own illness narratives or narratives of uh, loved ones with cancer that are not happy with it because um, at least I think in terms of palliative care, it doesn't make sense. Um, like, because loss is the ultimate only outcome. But again, here, I, I really want to be clear that um, I, I do not want to prescribe people's metaphors for their own illness experience. I think everyone is entitled to metaphorize and figure and narrativize their own illness um, as, they, as much as they want to, and however is helpful for them. And in fact, there is like research um, that looks at the connections between, uh, for instance, I cite one study about children playing video games about, um, you know, their cancer being um, a, an alien spaceship and they sort of shoot it and that having um, a kind of positive, a, a positive um, association. And I, I think it was statistically significant. I can't recall though. Um, so I don't want to be prescriptive to individuals. Um, however, especially in light of 2020, I think um, we should know that this is a thing. And I was, I was, I was glad to see that when coronavirus came out and, you know, I wasn't surprised to see that it immediately, you know, even in like the Lancet, like, you know, days after it became left China, there was like an article in the, I think the Lancet, um, I, I want to say, uh, that was about, uh, it was using Sung Tzu's The Art of War and as a framework to think about coronavirus. And then you have all sort of the political rhetoric. And so what I'm getting at is I think it's important to understand that this metaphor has a history and a kind of problematic one. Um, also that it's the go-to and sort of naturalized way of us talking about it. Um, it's not the only one. We can think about disease um, and illness as process, as journey. Um, a lot of work has sort of now, especially in light of, um, you know, metagenomics of the microbiome has started to look at uh, dysbiosis 
or imbalance of um, micro, my, microbial life inside the body, not as like the cause of all diseases, but as one possible cause of diseases, of, of a number of different diseases. And um, so then again, I especially related to antibiotics, I don't think war is a really good framework for that. I mean, especially when you hear things like scorched earth antibiotic therapy, um, uh, scorched earth broad spectrum antibiotics um, causing emergency diff infections. Um, so what I'm getting at, and um, I think where this relates to like medical practitioners and um, public health is that while I would love all medical students to read my, my book that's too long, um, I, I, I think the takeaway is that, that um, you know, there can and should be an attunement to the language that um, practitioners use when they used to, dis, uh, to talk about language, I'm uh, sorry, medicine and treatments, and also to be attuned um, of the language that patients use. And again, not to be prescriptive, but just to be aware. And um, I realized the limitations of medical practice in, in the 21st century and now in, in the face of telemedicine. Um, but there is, um, as uh, Rita Sharon and all the, all the people that have done work in narrative medicine and the way people talk about their illness, there is a lot of clinically relevant information there. And so I would and I would also suggest there is a lot on provider side to think about if there's a reflective moment to think about how they explain really complex physiological or pharmacological uh, or immunological processes in simple terms. I mean, because the fact of the matter is, um, I mean, we can't help but use metaphors for everything. Um, so I, I think this is one that um, has a lot of capacity to do harm if not thought about responsibly. Um, not in every case, but I think in certain cases with practitioners, where I have a lot of concern is with policymakers and politicians and people that have large platforms. Um, and so, like, you know, use like the China virus um, and then, you know, essentially re literally redeploying the kind of magic bullets idea that uh, from the early 20th century and Paul uh, Ilrich's cure for, um, uh, for syphilis as Alversan, which actually was sort of theorized by Thomas Huxley back in 1881 um, as a pharmacological torpedo. Um, I think there is there is a line where there is a responsibility um, to really consider the language that's being deployed. Um, and likewise with people that have very big platforms online, um, really think about what metaphors you're using. I, I see a lot of people being trying to be nuanced about how they describe coronavirus in terms of its um, um, aerosol transmission. Um, and, you know, a lot of times this leads to fights between virologists and aerobiologists and environmental engineers, like whether smoke is a good metaphor or whether it's inaccurate because you can still like smell smoke through uh, an N95 mask. Um, so, I mean, just as in statistics, um, like with language, it's, it's always imperfect, right? Um, the, 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 I think the question is just to realize um, the degree of imperfection or um, the degree of, of problematic, and then based on that, uh, try to make decisions that are useful materially in the world. Well, Lorenzo, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I want to ask one more question before our kind of sure. tra traditional final question. Um, do you have a 
Do you have a favorite alternative to the Marshall metaphor? What are, what do you think? Can you, can you tell us, do you, what do you, what are some metaphors that you think are maybe more generative or useful or anyway? This is the, the million dollar question that I always get asked and never have a great answer to. Um, <laughs> the one thing I have been thinking about and the one thing I, one thought I do have is that um, when we do say uh, something like the fight against coronavirus is to perhaps use a um, simile instead of metaphor. Um, so uh, the, our efforts um, to mitigate or to live with or to, um, to mitigate or eliminate coronavirus is like a war. And so that sort of draws attention to the fact that you're using a metaphor. And I think that can do some work there. Um, although that, that also has its trade-offs, um, I am increasingly starting to, to think about health, not health and even in, in less, uh, dichotomous or discrete or ordinal terms and more continuous, um, as a spectrum. Um, so I guess that would really just be like where, where you currently lie on the spectrum. Um, and you know, you could use statistical metaphors for that. Um, when it's really hard to write about this and not use the war metaphor. So I often turn to things like, um, live with or mitigate. Um, and, um, uh, I, I actually don't think about those as, metaphors as much. I, I think those are very literal. Um, albeit it's very hard to, to, to speak affirmatively about pathogens at the moment. I think for, for, for very reasonable reasons. Um, um, so, um, I, I guess my alternatives are just to think first, just to, to think if one can think of an alternative like balance or process, someone in the Atlantic, I believe recently we wrote a fabulous article about the immune system as an orchestra. Um, and in terms of its complexity, I mean, I think that's much better. That was much more nuanced and, um, had much more explanatory power than like different, you know, soldiers and lieutenants and whatever. Um, so I think there's a lot out there. Um, and I wish I had done that work, but I, I haven't as much. Um, but I think my, my one recommendation and go to is thinking about, um, thinking about the metaphors and language we use generally, whether they be martial or not, and um, think about what they afford, what they allow, and um, think about what they might delimit. Um, so the recognition of our use of metaphor is kind of the big takeaway. And for this one, if we're talking about war and it is, it is stuck in our lexicon, um, it, it could have some uses at scale. Um, at the population scale, um, and if they do, then I would, my recommendation would be to draw attention to its uh, figuration and uh, use it as an analogy or as a, or, um, as a simile. Do you have any ideas? What do you think? No, I have no idea. That's why, that's why I asked. Um, I mean, how about, how about, I know you write about recovery and addiction. I mean, that, that's an interesting one, right? I mean, I, I, I used the martial metaphor. Lorenzo, I used it. I know. Anyway, and I, no. working at an addiction center, I did well too. Um, and like, you know, we're going to beat this, uh, this heroin addiction. And then there's the, the other one, the, 
that I, I remember patients and um, providers saying all the time, like there's this gorilla doing push-ups in the parking lots. Or, in the, the, or, in the, yeah. or in the corner. Yeah, or in the yeah. corner. So, and whenever you let your guard down, it will, you know, get you. Yep. <laughs> um, and I don't know enough about recovery medicine, uh, addiction medicine nowadays, but I imagine there are alternative paradigms. Um, not that one's better or worse, but just that are different. And maybe I, I thought are worth thinking about. <laughs> there are, there are, there are, and there, and there are emerging ones. And I, I'm, I, I'm in the process of exploring those now. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I, well, anyway, um, what are, what are you working on now? What is, what is next? What is next? So next is, anti- is the science and fiction of antibiosis. And um, that um, is meant to be that, not that, so that it's fictional at all, but um, the more and more I learn about the uh, antibiotic resistance and um, the fact the, the the mechanism of horizontal gene transfer, um, the way that a bacteria can share uh, uh, resistance genes across uh, space and time within one generation, um, and then the fact that there are also resistance genes that existed before we had antibiotics as such. Um, and then the sort of kind of science fictional future that's been projected um, in, a, in, in a very few pieces of fiction, um, like, f- fascinates me and I think is a real actionable problem. And um, this is actually why I went back to graduate school to get a degree in public health, um, because, you know, even though I, I looked toward a lot of microbiology, I mean, in terms of clinical relevance, I, I'm more and more looking at epidemiology and infectious disease and um uh, I wanted to to make sure I was like, you know, actually knowing, you know, things be- beside like, you know, you need to have a, uh, a p-value less than you're equal to five. And it's not what I'm citing. But um, the book is basically looking at how we got to the idea of antibiosis. So I explore the, the terms in the 19th century from uh, botany uh, to bacteriology. And then I start to look at um, its use in sort of the first kinds of fiction that popularized medicine in the 20th century, like Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis. Mm -hmm. And then things like pop histories of medicine, like the miracle drugs by Paul de Kroof um, and the work they're doing. And then the book ultimately concludes with um, the current science fictional representations of antibiotic dystopian futures, um, uh, whether that be a video game, an iPhone game, um, that the Welcome Trust funded. And I have an article in Osiris about that. Um, a graphic novel um, that was also funded by the Welcome Trust um, about uh, England in 2036 uh, during an antibiotic dystopian uh, crisis and state. Um, and then they also have a, a collection of few of short stories. So I'm looking at those and then also a, an audio book in the form uh, that's pretending to be a uh, radio broadcast. So the book is ultimately going to be thinking about uh, the relationship between science fiction, uh, antibiosis, and media form, because these are all different media forms. Um, And if I can just, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. ahead. Oh, and um, the kind of last final piece of this that's really kind of, again, thrown a wrench and made this even more fascinating and complicated is... um, since I've been collaborating with a chemical engineer who works on uh, antivirulence drugs as a alternative to antibiotic resistance, 
Um, we were kind of framing our collaborative work as past, present, and future. The present person being our uh, science communication scholar, Sharon Friedman. Um, I, out of this, I was able to publish an article in the journal Antibiotics um, for a special issue on antivirulence drugs um, that just came out. And um, that article ended up being about how microbiologists and pharmacologists um, use Jekyll and Hyde to talk about um, variable virulence or the way that uh, virulence isn't an inherent property to pathogens, but it's something that is uh, contextual and relational. Um, and so, and, and it's not a piece about how science is, is using literature wrong. It's actually about a piece about how this, uh, this, this little shorthand of Jekyll and Hyde can, is actually so, so much more emblematic of, of the arguments and the research that they're showing. Um, and, and to do that, the, uh, the journal liked that piece to feature it on the cover of the issue. And they asked me to get a, um, an illustration. And um, I suspect maybe they were uh, hoping I would get uh, out of copyright, um, you know, uh, Jekyll and Hyde picture. But um, since I was trying to show how Jekyll and Hyde isn't dichotomous, it's more continuous and fluid and entangled um, as um, virulence seems to be as a concept um, per um, the people who study it. Study it. Um, I, uh, I got a medical illustrator um, under duress in rapid terms to be able to uh, create an illustration that um, will be the next cover of this journal, Antibiotics, and it will show Jekyll and Hyde in a non-dichotomous, continuous, emblematic, messy form um, relative to antibiotics. Um, this is... Um, uh, by uh, Mesa Schumacher at uh, Mesa Studios. She's a, a phenomenal me medical medical illustrator, and she uh, created this um, this piece uh, through a genre she calls disruptive realism, um, which I believe comes out of the word, work of Frank Francis uh, Bacon. So um, now I'm thinking more and more about integrating art into how I'm researching, and not just doing it after the fact. Um, and likewise, I'm also looking to a poet named Adam Dickinson in Canada who writes about polymers and um, microbiomes and uh, endocrine disruptors. And so I'm, I'm thinking about how not to just collaborate with scientists, um, uh, pharmacologists, IDs, epi, public health practitioners, but also poets and artists. So the, 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 the project, the next thing is, is getting really big and out of control and messy, but uh, fun. That sounds, yeah, sounds fun. Sounds really cool. Um, Lorenzo, I want to thank you so much for, for taking time to come on the show and share your work with us today. Oh, thank you so much for being so generous to invite me for this. I mean, it, it truly is an honor and flattering, and um, I'm still a bit nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.